as we sit here this evening, this is the night of the full moon in May. And it's a very auspicious day. Today is the day that is recognized as the Buddha's birthday. So in this day, we particularly think of the Buddha with gratitude. We can reflect on the many wonderful qualities of the Buddha for inspiration in our own practice. We can reflect on all of the teachings that we have received from him and those who followed him with gratitude. So there's many, many ways to practice with inspiration, with aspiration on the Buddha's birthday. It's also a night where uh, it's often uh, that people will sit up all night practicing. So maybe not sit up all night for you, although you're, of course, welcome to, but maybe a little extra time this evening and just you and the Buddha sitting together. This is a poem by Mary Oliver that I'm fond of. It's called The Buddha's Last Instruction. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. That's just nowness. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal of a, a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two solitaries, and he might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward, it thickens and settles over the fields around him. The villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs, disattached in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly I am not needed. Yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly, beneath the branches, he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. And so here we sit as best we are able. And that is always the intention. That is always the, the, the reflection. As best I am able, not attached to results, but staying grounded in the clarity of our intention to seek freedom from our own greed, our own aversion, our own delusion, as best we're able, as best we're able. The title of this evening's talk is The Body as Liberation. It's a bit irony because so often the body is presented as what imprisons us, 
of what is in the way of our liberation. And yet it is deliberately named, the body is liberation, because just as our strength is our weakness, and just as we can turn a weakness into a strength, so we can turn that which is related to in an unskillful way, does in fact imprison us, does cause us to create a lot of suffering for ourselves and others, to create a lot of unsatisfactoriness when we relate to it one way. If we relate to this very same experience called the body in another way, it can bring a sense of well-being. It can be a means of liberation. So this, this, this very body can be our gateway to freedom. I want to talk about liberation in regard to the body in three different aspects. One is this traditional Satipatthana teaching that we have referred to repeatedly in this retreat. This is the four foundations of mindfulness, which begins with the body. I want to start with that because in this teaching, the body is the foundational Satipatthana it is from the body that, our, uh, that we equip ourselves to uh, more and more deeply understand, able to implement, to practice regarding the other three satipatthanas. So you can think of the satipatthana, at least I do, as this is a description of the path of practice. It's, it's a description of the path of practice of mindfulness. So this is the practice, this satipatthana we referred to, the directions we've given uh, in the morning instruction sits and so forth. So that's the first way I'd like to do this this evening, which should in fact be about three days of, of teaching in itself. And then in the second way I'd like to explore this this evening with you is exploring the body as a phenomena of energy. And seeing the worlds that open up to us when we regard the body as energy. I'd like to do this because, in fact, in our sitting practice and our walking practice, and even in the moving around practice, we often have experiences that are in some way of an altered nature. They're not our ordinary reality experience. And what do we make of those? How do we understand those? And as we understand those within our particular teachings, it also relates us to other teachings we may have been exposed to in other traditions that, uh, that really focus on the energetic experiences that happen in meditation. Then the third way that I would like to look at this experience of the body as liberation is that the, the very knowing of the body, the very mindfulness of the body itself this mindfulness of the body as a means for exploring the three characteristics. And it is through exploring the three characteristics that we come to this direct knowing, this insight that, that brings freedom. And we could think of this as reflecting on what actually happens in practice. What is the, what is the fruit of practice? And this is one way to understand the fruit of practice, this through this, this seeing clearly these three characteristics. 
So the body, uh, from a satipatthana sense, as a means of practice, a means of starting the exploration of all of our experience, the, the body as an energetic experience and the, the various uh, states and experiences that we have during meditation and then the results of our meditation practice. Without this first way of looking at the body, we have no direction. We have no basis for progression. If we don't learn the satipatthana aspects as taught to us, we're just sort of milling around in our practice. And yes, we would stumble on various experiences and so forth. But for most of us, it's very hard to move on on our own without the assistance of a form, of a structure. And that's particularly true for all of us that are lay people, lay men, lay women. Because we have a limited amount of time that we spend in formal practice, and that makes it even harder. But I, I have been in uh, situations, I've been in centers, I'll call them centers, where people were living there full-time and practicing very intensely every day. And when I was there, I practiced very intensely every day. And I saw the, um, the confusing results that often came from intense practice without some sort of structure. I saw also a lot of harm done. So important, this structure. Really appreciating the Buddha's understanding of the necessity of a blueprint that we can follow in that way on this, his birthday. And then the, the, if we take the second, if we don't have the second approach of looking at our energetic experiences as part of our practice, one thing that can happen is we can miss the joy of practice. And this is something that we've noticed in some of the interviews is there's a lot of striving there's a lot of thinking. You've got to apply yourself hard to get this experience. Mindfulness is just staying with it. You don't have to stress on it. You don't have to lean into it. You don't have to pull away from these temptations. Just be there as best you're able. And when you're not and you wake up, just start over. Just start over. We always start where we are in Vipassana practice. We start where we are. We don't wait to have a better self. We don't wait for better conditions, which it's so easy to do, right? We're sitting there and we're, we're, we're doing our practice, but we know we're too sleepy or we're too this or we're too that. So we're not really practicing yet because the conditions aren't right. Delusion. <laughs> Delusion. And yet we can all fall into that. So no, we start where we are. And when we get completely lost, we just start over. Anything else is extra. Anything else is extra. Just let it go. Without this third dimension that, uh, or third aspect that I'm wanting to briefly explore tonight, we do not, uh, we don't fully apply ourselves. I so often encounter uh, experienced students who have never really turned to examining. The, the, the fourth foundation of mindfulness never really turned to, uh, to cultivating the seven factors of enlightenment and, and, and really applying themselves to the four noble truths 
and not looking at the three characteristics, not, not really uh, taking advantage. It's like they've sown all of these crops. You know, they've sat there through all the body pain, all the emotional stuff. They've gone through the kind of purification that happens. But then they're just sort of repeating themselves. And so it's, it's, uh, there is a, there's an applying this. We get to, we get to uh, you know, harvest our crops here just to have you know that. I, I'm particularly addressing those of you who have more experience, as there are a number of you. And then for those of you who are just at the beginning or close to the beginning, that there is an end to the path, that there, is a, there arises what are called path moments in which there is fundamental change, fundamental transformation. And there's the fruit of those path moments. So there is directionality to this, but there is a degree of applying it. So, uh, sati, uh, turning to the satipatthana first, there is this, this word sati, or mindfulness. There is also this word manasakara, or attention. Mindfulness is being present for what is. Being present for what is. I'm here, I know, this moment's like this. Whatever's arising in the knowing in the field of consciousness, in the field of awareness, mindfulness knows it's like this. Whatever it is, hearing, hearing, thinking, smelling, tasting, whatever is coming through any sense gate, it's being known. We are present with it in its mature form. And this does not start out this way, as all of you have seen for yourself, and I've seen for myself on this retreat. In its mature form, it is without objection. So we're present without objecting to what's true. Even though what's true in this moment may be very unpleasant, it's far from our, our, our preference, and we see how it's really not good for us. I mean, it's really like we, we have this kind of, we, but we stay with it. What does that mean? It means that we don't go to reactive mind. We don't go to reactive mind. So staying present without objecting is not going to reactive mind staying present without reactivity, even for like that much. That changes the whole karmic stream of this moment's unfolding. If we can stay present without objecting just that long, something's different. We've not compounded this papanchama and this, the compounding of one thought after another, this reactivity one after another. We've, we've created a pause in it what I call an interrupt sometimes. And that interrupt, we're no longer so caught in it. And time and time and time and time and time again of doing that, we break these deeply ingrained habits of mind to cling, to grasp, to, and on and on and on. Mindfulness stays with it. It doesn't interfere with it. There is in the Eightfold Path right effort. And it's out of right effort that we would then move. We would move. So here I'm thinking about the same old argument that I had with my mother, with my, my lover, whomever. And I've thought this already a hundred times on this retreat. It starts again. Mindfulness would go, oh, thinking of the same old thought 
is like this. It would recognize it as thinking. It would recognize it. As, it would just recognize it. It could investigate it and see what's true in it. But then right effort would say, I don't need to investigate this anymore. This is not getting me anywhere. And it would move away. It would move away to where it would direct attention. Manasakara, it would direct attention somewhere else. So you can think of, at least I think of it, and you can see if you want to or not, that, that uh, mindfulness is being present with what is, but attention is the spotlight that highlights something. And there's a bareness to that attention. So we turn the spotlight on it, and we just first feel it. It's very brief. I mean, very brief. We just see it as the phenomena. Oh, thought, smell, you know, just, just very little thing, just, or even just energy. We might not even know whether it's a smell or a taste yet. Just sensation is arising. Maybe that pair. And then mindfulness brings clarity to it that sets up investigation. And then it would be for wise attention. This, this, there's a, this phrase of Unicio Manasakara that wise attention what, is a combination of that spotlight of attention with mindfulness, with panya, panya, wisdom. So wisdom and mindfulness and attention, we then say, oh, this is what to do with this. And uh, out of right effort, we do it. We, out of right effort, we move. This is a little technical sounding, but I'm breaking it down this way because you can sort of say, well, now what am I supposed to do? Here I am with mindfulness, but then what do I do now? Okay, I'm seeing this. And so there's, there's, a, there's a procedure. It, it develops on its own as we keep practicing. But it, it, we, we first notice that's that, that attention. Then we stay with it without objecting. That's the mindfulness. And then there develops through staying with it in investigation. We, wisdom just naturally arises. This is called right understanding in the Eightfold Path. So everyone in here has been doing this this entire week without ever having a conscious awareness of it. But bringing a conscious awareness can make a difference. I was, I don't really have time for this story, but I will tell it anyway. I was once on a train uh, in India, and I had been with a teacher of mine in India. And very intense uh, time there. He he closed his gates, and he would only teach me for this period of time. Very intense practice. And so I, I get on this train going back to Delhi, and a whole bunch of uh, other uh, people from the U.S. get on the train, and a number of them sit behind me and across from me. And they have been with a whole other kind of teacher, and, uh, who's more of a kind of guru kind of teacher, that, the whole different uh, modality of this. And um, one of the persons said uh, something about, well, have you ever explored anything to do with mindfulness? And the brother said, no, I haven't done that. I, that Vipassana, I don't really know what that means. And one person said, well, yeah, I've done that. I, I've, I've done that mindfulness. I, I took, a, I took a, a weekend retreat in wherever this city he is. I won't name it. And he says, and it, it was really interesting at first to see what my mind did, that it would move here and move there. But then I said, well, so what? It's, it's just not that interesting. And I'm sitting there, of course, in silence, wanting to say, well, here's why. <laughs> but no, let that be. So we can be like that. We can get to so what if we lose this thread that, that the mindfulness as we stay with it, it develops wisdom and the wisdom will move us away from the suffering. So continuing with the exploration of the Satipatthana, the, the body is the first of these four foundations. It moves from the body 
to noticing the feelings that that Spring and others have made reference to, the feeling tone, the flavoring of each moment that's either a, a somewhat pleasant or somewhat unpleasant or very pleasant or very unpleasant or a kind of experience that would, never, would not be called pleasant nor unpleasant. And that flavoring is, is a, a primary cause of reactive mind to our experience. If it's pleasant, we want it. We want more of it, and we certainly don't want anybody taking it from us. And we get very upset when it starts to lose its taste, so then we want to have more of the same thing and so forth. We see this by watching pleasant, being mindful of pleasant. If the unpleasant, if, if we have it, we want to get rid of it. If we, don't, if we see it coming towards us, we want to move away from it. And we certainly don't think we judge it, we deserve it, or else we flip the other way and go, I so deserve this because I'm so worthless. We get all inflated in the opposite way. The best place to experience this is the pleasantness and unpleasantness experienced in the body. Through any sense gate, it can be pleasant, unpleasant, hearing, tasting, smelling, body sensations, body pain. And, and we have lots of each, as you've all seen in the course of your days here. As we learn to notice it in the body, we will then, in time, learn to notice it in our emotions and our mind states that arise later. But not only do we learn to train the mind to have this mindfulness, be able to investigate and notice this through the body first, we also start to uh, transform our nervous system so that we can tolerate the unpleasant. When you sit there with your, your back pain and you think, this is such a wasted sit. Wrong, 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 wrong. Misperception, misperception. You are training your nervous system to not get reactive, to not get caught just because there's pain in the, in the back. Yes, there's pain, but it's just pain. Or said another way, it's just unpleasant. We can learn this in the body far easier then we can learn it dealing with our emotions because we get so identified with our emotions and they move around so fast. One thing about the old body pain is it tends to repeat itself a lot. Have you noticed? And that's of such advantage. It's of such advantage. And I would really have you know this because it reinforces your enthusiasm for practice. And it will actually reduce that reactive mind to pleasant and unpleasant if you realize, oh, this is in the, this is in the service of something. This is serving a larger end. In the examination of the body, in the mindfulness of the body that, that was presented in the Satipatthana Sutta, it starts with breath. Breath was probably the predominant meditation practice at the time of the Buddha as it is today and probably has been ever since and everywhere. It is, uh, there's many reasons for that. There's, uh, there's a whole Dharma talk just on the value of the breath and why it works. There's many, many advantages, including uh, uh, affecting your nervous system because the breath and the nervous system are so close. And also, uh, depending on where you follow the breath, very different energetic states can arise and you can balance out your state of mind with breath and many things like that that's not 
discussion this evening. But as you go on, you will learn these things for yourself. So he starts with breath, and then he next uh, instructs us to be with the four postures, standing, sitting, lying down, and moving. Each of those are something we're involved in in every moment. So therefore, our mindfulness becomes continuous, not just our sitting and not just in our meditative walking, formal walking, but in all of our walking, in all of our sitting, in our yogi jobs, and brushing our teeth. There's this being aware of the body in whatever activity it is doing. And then there is the body activities themselves, where we watch the body activities of whatever it is lifting, you know, uh, lifting a, a fork, uh, placing uh, uh, dishes on a shelf, whatever we're doing. And then there is the, uh, the fourth of the body instructions is to be aware of the body parts. And it's not just any old body parts. It is body parts that were chosen uh, to sort of uh, break the illusion of this beautiful body, this attractive body that takes us off center. This is a controversial aspect in modern times of the Buddhist teaching because it sounds like such a rejection of the body. But I, in reading the suttas, do not take it as a rejection of the body, but rather a balancing of this, uh, the, this capacity of the I, particularly to uh, create a, a, an illusion where we think, oh, if I, if I just have this food, or I smell this food, and I just have this food, then I'm going to be really happy. And then we fall into gluttony or we, we, we eat things that cause us to be sick or the same with our sexuality. That through these sense gates, if, if there's such an illusion because the sense gates are so programmed to notice what the pleasant in, in terms of wanting the pleasant. But, and, and, so, and we get really caught in the present. But as we start to see the body as a composed vehicle uh, made up of many different things which are not in themselves all that attractive we start to lose the spell of that many 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 yogis have experienced this and come in and reported uh, a a more balanced view of the body and how it's helped them people with various kinds of addictions people who just have habits this compulsive a kind of compulsive mind around anything from uh, uh you know, being attracted to beauty, to being attracted to food, to even loathing themselves or not thinking their body's terrible or all of these different ways. This, all of this reactivity around body, as it gets seen, it's just, it's just this bunch of parts, as Anne was saying, making the, the, quoting the Buddha's analogy about various kinds of grains and all. It's, it's not that we're supposed to dislike the body. It's that we, we have a balanced mind that allows choice. So there can be sila, there can be ethical behavior, there can be wisdom, there can be non-harming, the, the, the following the precepts. We don't cause harm through the sense gates that, that, that are being affected by the body. That's clear enough, isn't it? So then there is the four elements, the practice of the four elements. And... Um, I've never done this, but I want to offer a retreat where we just do the four-element practice. Or else I'd like us to take three days on this retreat and maybe the first three days and do nothing but the four elements. It is such a rich practice. 
And so many things come from that. A very beneficial practice. And then the last of the body practices, which can uh, sometimes upset people, is the contemplation of a corpse. And in the time of the Buddha, you would go out where the corpse were left for the birds, and you would watch, you would watch the decay of the body. In our modern times, we, use, we have pictures of the body and its various states of decay that we'll use on a retreat. Or, and we also uh, encourage people, you know, if they, if they have access to a clinic where they can, they can actually see uh, the, the various body parts and all, that this is a very good thing to, to do at these various medical colleges. We've taken a number of people at various times to that. So those are the, those are the practices. There's then... There's many instructions about what to do for each of these, so this can be on and on. You can spend, you can spend months in, with this awareness of the body if that's what you want to do as a practice. And it's all very useful. It gets many different ways, many different understandings. And not all the teachings, not all the teachers agree on, um, within the Theravadan tradition, on exactly what some of these instructions mean. So that can be confusing. But in general, this awareness of the body, the way I've described it, What happens is we progressively deepen our perception. We become more dropped into the body. We, have, we gain access to this felt sense that I did the first night. We become dispassionate in terms of the body because we see its impersonal nature. This is all gains. There's no losses. There's losses at times in the practice because we, lose, uh, we don't get fooled by the soap opera you know, as much. The soap opera of our lives... You know, you know, who's right, who's wrong, does she like me, does he like me, all of that. We, we lose some interest in the soap opera. But this stage of just developing body awareness, as far as I can see, is, is such a gain. Although it's unpleasant at times in the process, because there you are staying with body discomfort that you ordinarily wouldn't stay with. In these instructions of these six, it starts out with talking about knowing that we're supposed to know these things, like knowing the knowing the in, knowing that we have an inhale, knowing we have an exhale, and then it starts talking about how we train. I train the I train uh, uh, you know, a, a long breath. I train a short breath, and uh, likewise training this calming of the breath, this calming. And so, again, we haven't gone into a lot of that in this, but there's a lot of instruction about that. And there's a whole sutta called the Anapanasati Sutta that is all about this. And there's these 16 stages in this. And I mentioned this again, even though you may be a beginner, that you would, that when you hear references to something like this, you go, oh, yes, this is just a natural part of my progress through this awareness of the body. It's not something totally mysterious. I just haven't been exposed to it yet. It's not something that I can't ever do and all of that kind of mind states where we raise doubt, where we don't continue to explore. As we uh, come to know mindfulness of the body, we've developed this sati. We are developing the middle path, the middle way that someone referred to in an earlier talk because we're neither suppressing our experience nor reacting to it. I want to repeat that. We're neither suppressing experience, you know, denying it, distracting ourselves from it, uh, 
etc., nor are we reacting to it. It's a middle way. That is so cool. <laughs> it is so cool. It is so empowering. Just with the body alone. When you can just be with the body, and, and so if it's, if it's unpleasant, it's just unpleasant, and you're going about your business. You are on this, this whatever you're doing at that moment, you're just going on and doing it. If you're on a hike and your body's hurting, you, you take your hurting body for a walk. That's fine. Not to the point of, of, you know, if something's, you know, really strained, you wouldn't keep walking. Not like that, but that you don't, you're not caught in all this. Likewise, if there's a lot of moods that you're going through, you go ahead and can have your day because you're feeling those moods in the body, but you can stay grounded in the body and not get caught. It is so empowering. I encourage you to really look at this for yourself over the remaining days of this retreat and then the first few days after the retreat when it's still so fresh and you've got so much access to it. So mindfulness of the body is not demonizing the body, but balancing it. It is a secure ground for opening to other experiences that are more difficult. We learn to stay grounded in the body. We also see that this mindfulness in this way is necessary for concentration. So this, uh, whether it's with the breath or something else, this sati is necessary for concentration and that we have a whole retreat that we do uh, called the concentration retreat that uh, teaches you techniques about that. And so now, having really uh, experienced the body, as we have done in these last couple of days, we've opened to the pleasant and unpleasant today. Uh, uh, spring took us through opening to all the emotions that come. We can start to watch the mind states more and more as they come as we go through this. As we do this, we, um, we become more awake. When we're more awake, we are in the first process, the first step of gaining choice, choosing non-suffering over suffering. The opposite of suffering is not happiness, it's non-suffering. Happiness has got a whole other meaning. Said another way, we, we cease to choose that which is in unsatisfactory, which quickly proves unsatisfactory in our lives when we grab hold of it, to things that are satisfactory. This, this knowing, resting in awareness, resting in our values and our intentions. As we contemplate the mind, lots of times the emotions are so strong that we don't really know what the emotion is we're feeling. We're not even sure we're feeling an emotion. But in fact, as we've learned to feel the body, again, someone said this the other night, we then feel the emotion. We learn to recognize the emotion through the body. We also, when we have strong emotions of pleasant or unpleasant nature that would throw us way off center, lose our equanimity, lose our balanced mind, lose any kind of calmness, any kind of sense of choice, we can stabilize back in the body. So we go to the body, go back to this strong emotion that's arising, this story, this difficult story, go back to the body, go back and forth. Very, very useful helping us in this way. And then uh, as we see that, we, we, there's the, in the Satipatthana Sutta, they talk about four ordinary mind states, and the, which are difficult mind states, and four higher mind states. And we start to learn how to embody 
each of those higher mind states. There's a felt sense of each of those higher mind states, just as we learn to recognize the, uh, the mind states that are, that are ordinary, so we recognize uh, these higher mind states. And oftentimes how we would access them for many practitioners at times in their practice is actually through the body. One thing to say, because uh, we haven't said this as far as I can recall on this retreat, oftentimes people will come in and say, well, I don't feel anything in my arms, or I don't feel in my, something in my legs, or this part of my body the, around the abdomen is numb. Numbness is a body sensation. Numbness is a body sensation. So numbness is like this. That's as fine a thing to be mindful of as anything else. So there's not something wrong in that sense. As we learn to use the body more and more as a resource, we can be longer with difficult mind states, and it reduces their intensity and their duration because we can stay embodied in them. And so just as the nervous system gets trained, gets rewired for being with physical pain, so the nervous system gets rewired for being with emotional pain. And this gives us more of an equanimous mind that we can get deeper still in our meditation. We, we have more insight because there's less and less and less reactivity. It is a progression, but it's not linear. We go out, we grow a while, then we forget it, and we collapse back in, then we really a total selfing, 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 come back out. Oh, yes, here I am. This is so easy. I would never have anything but this. This is this mindfulness. This is how I want to live always. Back in, turn all the way back in, totally complete self, totally caught in this or that. And then we come back out. That's not a mistake. That's the nature of the way we grow in this realm. Not our preference, maybe, but that's how it works for almost all of us. Almost all of us. I'm always willing to admit the possibility of someone who skipped to the end. But that's not the Buddhist story. It's not the Buddhist story. He did not skip to the end. I mean, uh, these six years of wandering around, he did not skip to the end. Through the body, we have this felt sense of mind states. And it's the felt sense of mind states that where we will have, we will get insight into various mind states. It's, it, an insight is a felt sense. It's, it's not an intellectual recognition. Otherwise, all we would have to do is just read some books and say, does this intellectually make sense? And bang, we're there. It's clearly not that way. Or we would all be you know, fully liberated beings. So this felt sense, this, this direct knowing that is Vipassana, and again, you cannot practice Vipassana. You practice creating the conditions where Vipassana insight seen through may arise. We create uh, fortunate conditions. That's what we're doing. All of this, all this preparation is so that the conditions are right and then an insight arises when the conditions are right in that way. When we turn to the body as energy... So many things I can't do. <laughs> I'm experiencing a little attachment <laughs> issue here. <laughs> it, we see that a lot of our expression of what happens in practice would be fairly reflected as an energetic experience. 
Even the body pain is an energetic experience. Even the wanting something, like when I mentioned uh, gratitude for the Buddha, if you really look closely at the gratitude, it's an energetic experience. You can feel it as a wave or a pulsation, but there, it's an energetic experience that, that this, this realm of experience that we, that we live in is energetic in nature. As we practice, we oftentimes feel a kind of um, purification happen. So mindfulness is both a wisdom practice and a purification practice. And a lot of that purification of both the body trauma and emotional trauma gets felt as energy in some way or another. Energy releases or energy vibration or like I say, the intense pain. We can be, we can be having an emotional release and there's a physical pain with it. That is what I would term all of that within this larger umbrella of an energetic release. But we also uh, have uh, experiences that are just energetic. You know, something feels different. Just different. There's a there's a different energetic experience. We're accessing things that we don't ordinarily access. The energy is the energy is so clear that the mind is because the mind is clear that suddenly the, this beautiful nature around here is like alive to us. It's like we've never seen it before. It's, that's that that's that's that original mind. That's a, that is an energetic experience. The, the energetics have changed in our experience at that moment. We also have various energies move through the body, move around the body, not to be afraid of this, not to be attached to it, not to encourage it, but not to, to uh, be running away from it either. And there's many traditions that have many different interpretations of these energetic systems. And we have a lot of experiences that happen on retreat that have been described in other traditions. And sometimes someone will come in and be describing something and they'd say, I've never read about anything like this in any of the Buddhist text. But if there's other text where they, that's been described, that's just natural. That's just natural. There's no harm in that. There's no, uh, the way we cope with these things in general is quite uh, good and when they're, when they're uh, things of strain. We always want to be respectful of energetic experiences in the body and in the mind. We want to be respectful so we don't get so fascinated. We don't keep pushing it. We don't lean into it. We don't try to amp it up. But we're willing to let it be part of our experience. In fact, what we start to see that the, the body, this physical body, which isn't really so physical, it's mostly empty, and as Anne said the other night, what's there is mostly liquid, mostly water, in some form or another. But mostly it's empty. There's really very few particles. Because as you, we know, most, cell, most atoms are made up of space, not material. There's just a little proton, neutron, and so forth around. You know, it's, not, it's, it's mostly empty. And, and what's, if you're going to say the one thing there more than anything else other than the emptiness would be the energetic experience of it. So uh, we, in, in the yoga tradition, they talk about uh, the, the prana. So th- this energy, this, this energy that, uh, that is necessary for life, it feeds physical life. So all of energy, it, if you don't have movement, you don't have life. If it's alive, it's moving. It may be so subtle level we can't see it, but it's, without, without movement, it's not there. 
And so we start through the accessing, this, this feeling in the body of energy, we, we can actually uh, have all sorts of positive effects on our physical body. That's, uh, I'll, uh, I remember one time Joseph Goldstein saying that's the, that some of the best body work he'd ever received was sitting in meditation. And I've experienced that too, as have uh, uh, many of you in this room. So there can be that kind of energetic experience in the body that way, through the energy body, if I may use that term that way. And likewise, in terms of the emotions, that the, 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 the emotions need energy. And as we feel the emotions uh, as, as, from the context of the energy body, they, they are less concrete. We can feel the energy of anger. And, oh, so now I feel the energy. Yes, there is this interpretation, this mental narrative of anger. There are these certain reactivities of mind that I call anger. But if I look closely at all, each of those little reactivities that make up the anger, they're energy. And then we, that is, so then the emotional body becomes more porous to us, more access, and we, we can bring our intentions into the emotional body in this way. In long-term practice, and sometimes in not long-term practice, it happens right away at times for some people, we drop into an even more subtle level of this energy body, of something that maybe is even underneath the energy level. And that, that has many different uh, aspects to it also. And again, many people have suggested different maps for that. But one of, those that, uh, one of, the, one of the things that I like to point out is that there is a kind of um, uh, field of energetic awareness that we can, that we can sometimes access that feels very wonderful. Just to notice that. Let that be part of the joy. Let that be part of the contentment of mind. We also have experiences that, you know, you're sitting there and suddenly you're up on the ceiling looking down at yourself or you feel like you're somewhere else. That too, there's a kind of, there's a body that travels that way. There's this, this body within this that just does that. It's nothing, it's nothing special. It's ordinary. And yet it, we do have experiences that, how do you explain it? You know, that will, that will, we, our, our perception changes in some way. So our perception has changed. That's, there's, within the body, there's this, this, this body that can have that kind of experience. It's not to be grasped after. It's not to be afraid of. And likewise, uh, there is a way of, uh, of stillness that arises in the body where the body is, is so aware, the mind has become so pliable that we're in a body that is like the intuitive body that can know. This is when insight can really arise. The, the, the mind is so pliable, it's able to stay with experience. It can reflect on what's this third experience, the three characteristics and all. It just naturally sees it. Having a little direction, our, helping, our, our looking for that, our inclining the mind in that direction certainly helps. But when we're, when we're sitting in that, what I'm terming like an intuitive body, it is this body that knows that knows, knows the teachings of the Buddha, knows the way things is. It can directly apprehend what is. It can directly apprehend. It's non-cognitive in the regular sense. It's not, it's not based on the sense gates exactly. It's something beyond these regular six senses. It's this intuitive knowing. And to me, at least in my experience, this may not be true for you and others might not agree with this, this is where I think of the Buddha and his, his, 
the night of his enlightenment. He sat there, having prepared all of these years, so that he sat there. That was the body he sat in, this knowing body, this knowing through being. He was not doing in that moment. He wasn't, he wasn't busy knowing, knowing. He, he was there in this being. And then he could have all of those experiences that are described as part of his enlightenment, where knowing did arise. But there was no doing. But the knowing did arise. But the knowing wasn't through trying to know, but being this receptive in this way. We each have a body that can know like that. That's through its very beingness knows. It's a kind of knowing that's the subtle liberating knowledge. Which brings me to the third and the, uh, the, the last aspect of this awareness of the body uh, that I would have is uh, reflect in terms of the body as liberation. And that is really turning our experience on this retreat. At times when you're stable in mind, there's a certain energy. Well, there's this teaching about Anicca that things are always changing, particularly for those of you with more experience. Things are always changing. Here I'm sitting here. I've not got anything else to do. I will notice that things change. I want to notice that. So what am I doing in my practice right now? I'm noticing that things change. Oh, the breath changes. Every moment the breath changes. Oh, well, what's in my mind? Every moment's changing. And we just notice changing. We see the truth of the Nietzsche for ourselves over and over again as cognition. And in seeing it as cognition, at some point, it arises as insight. Again, we can't practice it as insight, but we can practice it as cognition. So that's the characteristic of things changing. And then also seeing the dukkha, that, that there is an unsatisfactoriness to things that change. So even if they're great, they change. So even if I've got everything just the way I want it, it changes. You know, that, that, that wonderful uh, soup the other day was over. Or after the 10th bite, you couldn't really get so excited about it anymore. Although you still registered it as good, but there wasn't the same rush. And so here you are, oh, this retreats, this, this, uh, it's never going to end. And then the bell rings. Or the, it's never going to end, it's never going to end. I wonder what's for lunch. What happened to that? It's never going to end fixation. That to see, the, the, to open to a Nietzsche, that everything, that watching nature, just open to that. Or open, uh, and, and uh, uh, the dukkha, to the unsatisfactoriness, this, this, uh, the pain that can come from everything. and uh, the, These various ways of looking at that, which again isn't the subject of this evening's talk. And then to also, someone brought up this question today of, of, of not-self. And I do like that phrase, not-self. So this body is not me in the sense that I cannot control it. I can't say, okay, body, you're not going to hurt and it stops hurting. It's not a me in that way. It's, it's not a me in that I can't find one piece that makes the body. So that my identification with the body, my identification with any experience that's within the sense realms, is, has an illusionary nature when I take it as something that is, that is lasting in its happiness or, or within my control or is, is my essence. So we, we open to insights or you can open, you can open to uh, other experiences, the, the hindrances of mine. You can say, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to really notice that what I want to notice this retreat, this, this particular set, is any hindrance of mine that comes up. Oh, here's restlessness and worry. You're not fixing restlessness and worry. You're knowing it. Mindfulness knows. It doesn't, 
It doesn't interfere with. Oh, here's restless and worry. Oh, oh, now there's this strong desire, this hindrance of desire. It's so strong. Oh, and now there's this aversion to like, I'm not going to get it. And I'm having this thinking about what, I, what, what it's going to be like. And I'm feeling aversion. So you just notice the hindrances. You're just curious. You're investigating. You're not fixing. And so, uh, and we can see all of those uh, uh, reflected, the restless and worry in the body. We can see the desire in the body. We, we, we can see the aversion in the body, the sloth and torpor in the body. We can see doubt in the body. There's a kind of confused feeling that's a felt sense in the body when there's this doubt. Well, maybe this is a waste of time. I can't do this. There, it's, it's an embodied feeling, that doubt, that can be identified. Maybe not so easy. So just look and see. These three together uh, might make up uh, a totality or one way of creating a totality of what our experience is. So the satipatthana, this is the way we're practicing. This noticing the energetic experience is being aware to the, 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 what happens, the experiences along the way of our practicing satipatthana and then applying satipatthana in ways that are liberating uh, would be uh, cultivating more directly the fruit. We see this in that fourth foundation of mindfulness, that, which is contemplation of the hindrances and of the seven factors of, of enlightenment and the uh, aggregates and the Four Noble Truths and so forth. But to really say, okay, that's what I'm, that's what I'm wanting to do right now is to practice that. I know that uh, we all know that, that it would be so nice to just be so, okay, just practice this way right now. Just, everybody's supposed to practice just like this. There's times we do that. Like on the concentration retreat, we really ask everybody to practice a certain way over and over and over again. But in this kind of a retreat, you're opening to a full range of your experience. So it's, it, there's, there's both the science of the satipatthana, but there is the art of practice itself. There's something creative about practice. It's not just mechanical. Mechanical, a mechanical feeling of practice gets very dull. You get burned out. You start to get tense. So the art, how are you dancing with practice? What's creative right now? You're not constantly changing the practice, but you, you respond each sit or each day. You, can, you learn to choose for yourself. We have maybe not done as ideal a job as we, as we uh, could have in terms of saying, well, this day, what did we do in the int- instruction sit? We're really encouraging you to do during the day. Maybe we've not made that as clear as possible. But how you do that has got to vary because your mind state, where your body is, how much energy you have, you know, are you sick, are you well, you know, all of these different things. Are you dealing with a very difficult health situation right now or a difficult thing in your uh, family life? It, everything changes based on all that. And we, we tailor it in these individual uh, check-ins. But still, there's a degree of you finding your own way in the practice. Just as you balance between how much metta you do during the practice and how much walking versus sitting you do. And then how you practice when you sit. All of these. So we are, in a way, constantly turning back the practice and making it your practice. That that is less comfortable at times, but in the long run, it's more empowering and it, it makes you independent. You're not dependent on a guru. You are dependent on yourself as a teacher. Make a light unto yourself, said the Buddha. Make a light unto yourself, said the Buddha. Hold fast to the truth as your teacher. 
These are his last instructions. And so we do here on his birthday as has been done all of these centuries since then, turning it back to each person to know the truth for themselves, to realize the Dharma for themselves. So let's sit for a moment. Feel the awareness in the body just now. Come into embodied awareness. Know that you're feeling embodied awareness just now. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning. Happy birthday, Buddha, and thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for your kind. And walk now with this openness to that you are practicing. Give. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.